Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 37. You know, we are nearing the end of the trail when it comes to grassy knoll witnesses. There are a few more episodes coming, and they are good ones. But another topic which has been off on the horizon is now getting closer. When we are done talking to the eyewitnesses that were right there, right there that day, the remainder of these grassy knoll witnesses, we are going to pivot then to the natural next question of what the pathology and forensics say, starting with Parkland and ending at Bethesda. And believe me, if some of these current stories are beginning to sound somewhat bizarre, confusing, and contradictory to you, wait till we pivot then to this next topic around the forensics. Today, we're going to cover two sets of witnesses, Charles Brem and his son, and Bill and Gail Newman and their sons. Happy 4th of July to everybody out there. This is a wonderful holiday. It means so much to our country, and I hope you're enjoying a happy and healthy weekend. And so without further ado... Let's listen to episode 37. Charles Brem. You know Mr. Brem already. You've heard from him before on a previous episode. So why give Mr. Brem a second act? Well, stick around and I'll explain it. Brem, at the time of the headshot, was one of the closest witnesses to the assassination. As you heard previously, Brem was a World War II veteran who served in the United States Army Rangers. He fought and was wounded at Omaha Beach during the invasion at Point du Hoc. That was in France during D-Day. He later also served during the Korean War. Brem was a handsome man that became one of the celebrity witnesses of the assassination scene. His on-camera emotional display on November 22nd was a rare moment among the celebrity witnesses, all of whom seemed to have been able to maintain their composure in some sort of uber-adult way that day as they handled the cameras and fielded questions and told their story, all while trying to process in their own psyche what had just happened and what it really meant. Again, like I said in the episode where we originally introduced Mr. Brem to you, it just might have been that Mr. Brem's World War II experience was more than enough to reignite past horrors of mortal combat at that moment in Dealey Plaza. The other celebrity witnesses, though stunned, had no such reference point in their personal lives. Gene Hill and Linda Willis stood there, affixed and gazing as bullets whizzed by. Mr. Bram processed those shots, and maybe for him it was just like D-Day, all over again for just a moment. They didn't treat soldiers for post-traumatic stress in those days. You came home to a massive parade and a world thankful for what you had done, even though the horror of it would live on in your own mind till the end of things. Bram was a unique character in that sense. He was a participant in D-Day, which was the Allied invasion of Europe at the Normandy beaches and the geography just beyond the beaches, an invasion that established the toehold back on the European continent and turned the tide of the war in our direction, and it marked the beginning of the end for Hitler and the Nazis. And now, Brem had witnessed close up the assassination of an American president, undoubtedly two of the biggest events to take place in the American 20th century, 
and perhaps two of the most important events in the history of mankind. For this reason, he was a witness with an assigned N of one. He was the only one to have been there for both. And to top it off, he brought his five-year-old son, who now had to live with the violent memory of what he saw for the rest of his life. Sometimes history repeats itself in the most peculiar of ways. Well, all that may be true, but it doesn't really explain why I am bringing Charles Brem back on stage for a second act. So I'll get to the point in a minute. Brem would rather have just headed home with his son, but like the other celebrity witnesses who were right there, well, the cameras immediately captured him on tape. And with Brem, I think the word captured is the operative word. And they clearly saw his actions as he fell on the boy, as he put it, to keep his son safe as the shots continued to ring out. It was an iconic moment captured on film and was to become one of the many signature visual moments associated with the assassination itself. After the WFAA news team spotted Brem, they would eventually get him on camera that day. Shortly thereafter, they would record his eyewitness account of what happened. It was short and sweet, so to speak. And in the chaos and the division of labor between the authorities that occurred in the couple of hours just after the assassination, Brem would answer some policemen's questions right there at the scene and then eventually be escorted over to the Dallas Police Department office. But there was no Dallas police report or sheriff's affidavit that day for Brem. The FBI report on Brem is dated two days after the assassination on November 24th, and it's the only official account given by the authorities on what Brem said that day to them. He was held at the Dallas police station for several hours after the assassination, but he was never called to testify by the Warren Commission. You might immediately jump to the conclusion that he supported a grassy knoll shooter, and that's why the commission did not ask him to testify. But that is not the case. Unlike Gene Hill, he had not made any public statements that were controversial. In fact, on tape, it sounded like a man who wanted to overtly signal to anyone listening that he really didn't see much of anything and that he really couldn't help anyone beyond saying that he saw the president get hit and it was awful. Something like that, anyway. I think his statement was generally true, regardless of the motivation behind it. Perhaps he was a man savvy in his ability to spot evil coming his way, something learned after having been in the war. In fact, in his FBI statement, Brem stated that it seemed quite apparent to him that the shots came from one of two buildings back at the corner of Elm and Houston Streets, meaning that the shots came from either the Texas School Book Depository or the Dow Tex building. So, you see nothing in the official record of controversy at all. But as time went on and people began to question the official account of what was documented, particularly in some cases by the FBI, they would look to other sources of what he said. And it all really started over the assassination weekend. During that weekend, the Dallas Times-Herald ran a story that quoted Brem as saying that Brem seemed to think the shots came from in front of or beside the president. This statement would become one of a number of statements that transformed itself into something of a hanging chad, so to speak, for Mr. Brem. And in later statements, he mentions some type of matter, presumably the president's brains, by the way, ejecting out of the president's head and moving in the direction toward Brem on his side of the street. 
This happened at the time of the headshot. Brem was standing on the south side of Elm Street, so his statement, as straightforward as it sounds, was ignited by the Dallas Times-Herald story that possibly implied a shot from the knoll and then became the basis for later controversy. I'll explain. And there was one more thing. Brem was not sure in his own mind that what he saw fly over his way was even brain parts. But based on what so many other close-up witnesses experienced, it's almost a certainty. That is, what he saw was brain tissue and skull flying about. Why he hedged so clearly and specifically on this point, I think just hinges around his own trauma related to what he saw. And really, he understood that making a statement he was not sure about was really not a good thing either way in this circumstance. Well, now enter Mark Lane, and this is where the whole thing gets interesting. Lane, as you know already, was one of the original pursuers of truth in this case. I highly respect Mark Lane and the courage that he exhibited in many circumstances, but there are a number of situations where other actors in this play had misdealings with Lane or characterized their dealings as less than satisfactory. Hugh Ainsworth, the famous Dallas reporter that was present for and covered so many aspects of the Kennedy assassination, tells the story of an interaction with Lane where Lane's subsequent use of certain information that Ainsworth had given him was contrary to their mutually agreed upon understanding. So for some, it was a question of trust and credibility. I won't get into the details of that incident right now, but suffice it to say that Lane was a hard-charging guy who at times got some details wrong and was at times generally controversial. But again, that doesn't detract from the overall mission he undertook. He died just a few years ago, and honestly, no matter what anybody says about him, and some of it may be true, he strikes me in at least some sense of the word, as an American patriot who exhibited real courage to seek and speak the truth about the JFK matter. He was doing this before anyone else was. He and a small coterie of others. Regardless of whatever other ancillary motives he might have had, motives that he might have had from the outset or that might have developed later, either out of economic necessity to fund the continuing assassination research or some other motivation. There were a lot of real-life considerations mixed into all of this stuff. For people who stayed on the trail for many years, it affected most of them personally in ways that were real and very tangible. Well, enough of this wander. Lane didn't stay in his own lane, so to speak, when it came to Brem. He was already interviewing witnesses that were clearly and convincingly saying that there were shots from the grassy knoll. In some sense, maybe it was ego, he may have wanted all of the celebrity witnesses to become beacons of light in the night, all joining the crusade against the Warren Commission narrative. Brem would be a great catch for him, too. A World War II hero, not called by the Warren Commission to testify, had said little in the public realm that would need to be explained later if it was contrary to saying that he now believed there was a shot from the grassy knoll all in all, it was a compelling argument to go and tease out the real truth from Brem. And so he did. That is, he did try to squeeze out something more from Brem. But it essentially backfired. What happened in a nutshell was simply this. 
Lane would interview Brem for his upcoming movie, Rush to Judgment, and he would emphasize not where Brem thought the shots had come from, but would clearly focus on Brem's eyewitness account of what was ostensibly brain matter being splattered back and to the left in the now famous litany that resonates every time we think of the movie JFK. Back and to the left, back and to the left. That was step one for Lane. Get that account on tape and include it in the movie. Well, that he did. But what he did after that was to be a trademark of Lane in other circumstances as well. Lane would do a Playboy interview in 1967, making specific references to Brem, which then appeared in the written Playboy interview, telling Brem's story for him of the ejecting brain matter headed back and to the left. And Lane, in the interview, would then take it a step further, clearly implying that Brem thought for this reason that the shots had come from the grassy knoll. First of all, Brem was probably not all too happy with his name appearing front and center in a Playboy interview. So started the long-running controversy between what Brem really said and what Lane implied that he said, with Lane trying to bend Brem's statements using a subtle form of brute force, with the intention of getting him to join the rest of the celebrity witnesses, the rest of the grassy knoll conspirists. After all, for Lane, getting all the celebrity witnesses lined up and essentially saying the same thing, that is, that virtually all of them down close believed that a shot had come from the grassy knoll, well, it wouldn't be quite the Rosetta Stone of the case, but it sure would go a long way, in a case that still had no eyewitness testimony stating that they saw a shooter in the grassy knoll location or behind the picket fence or anywhere around that location. No witnesses at all saying that anyone actually saw a shooting from the grassy knoll area. And so far, even the few precious pieces of photographic evidence, pictures taken of the knoll right as the shots were fired, were not definitive and perhaps not even persuasive when it came to proving that a shooter was in that position. Ultimately, Lane's approach with Brem probably hurt the conspiracy cause, but it was born out of true motivation to get the truth as a defense attorney accentuates the positive and eliminates the negative. As jurors, you need to know this, because ultimately, you are just seeking the truth. Well, enough from me. Let's hear from the witnesses and from Lane. First, let's listen again to Charles Brem's short account given to the reporters on the day of the assassination. Coming up is a statement by Charles Brem, who was on the sidewalk, and saw the shoot. Unfortunately, I was probably 15 to 20 feet away from the president when it happened. Tell us exactly what you saw, sir. <laughs> he was coming down the street, and my five-year-old boy and myself were by ourselves on the grass there on Palmer Street, and I asked Joe to wave to him, and Joe waved, and I waved, and the man... The man... That's all right, sir. You waved, sir. As he, as he was waving back, he, he was, he was, the shot rang out and he slumped down in the seat. And his wife reached up toward him and as he, as he was slumping down and the second shot went off and it just knocked him down from the seat. Two shots. Two shots. Did you see the man who did these? No, sir, I did not see the man who did it. I, I, all, I, all I did was look in the man's face when he was shot there and saw that expression on his face and grabbed himself and slide. 
And the second one, whenever it went, why, I'm positive it hit him. I hope it didn't, but I'm positive that it hit him, and, it, and he went all the way down in the car. Then they speeded up, and I didn't know what was going on, so I just grabbed the boy and fell on him in hopes that there wasn't a maniac around him. I'm all right. I can't help you more, but I, I won't forget. Now, let's fast forward a bit to the recording of Rush to Judgment and listen to Mark Lane interviewing Charles Brem on the topic of the shots and of the brain matter injecting back and to the left. You on November 22nd, 1963. I had taken my five-year-old son downtown to see the presidential parade. This is a picture taken by Mr. Nix of the limousine at the time the shots were fired. Do you see yourself and your boy in that picture? Yes, sir. This is myself and this is my son on this frame here where the first shot hit the president. I would say that the he was possibly 30 feet away when the first bullet struck, moved a little closer, and was possibly 20 to 25 feet away when the second bullet hit. Did you see the effect of the bullets upon the president? Uh, when the second bullet hit, uh, there was the hair seemed to go flying, uh, it was very definite then that he was struck in the head with the second bullet. And, uh, yes, sir, I, I very definitely saw effects of the second bullet. Did you see any particles of the president's skull fly when the bullet struck him in the head? I saw a piece fly over, oh, in the area of the curb where I was standing. And in which direction did that fly? It seemed to have, have come left and back. In other words, the skull particle flew to the left and to the rear of the presidential limousine. Uh, sir, whatever it was that I saw did fall both in that direction and over into the curb there. You were a ranger during the war, correct? Yes, sir, I was a ranger during the war. Took part in the invasion of France and was shot a couple of times, so... Uh, as I say, it's possibly like swimming. Uh, I hadn't heard that sound for many a year, but you don't forget it once uh, once you've heard a shot rounding, coming close to you. Did you speak with newsmen on November 22nd and tell them what you saw? Yes, sir, and told them simply that there two shots had hit the president and the direction that I had thought the bullets had come from. Did you at any time that day make a statement which was televised? Yes, sir. Fortunately, I was probably 15 to 20 feet away from the president when it happened. Tell us exactly what you saw, sir. <laughs> he was coming down the street, and my five-year-old boy and myself were by ourselves on the grass there on Palmer Street, and I asked Joe to wave to him, and Joe waved, and I waved in the minute. That's all right, sir. You were as, as he was waving back, he was, he was, the shot rang out and he slumped down in the seat. And his wife reached up toward him and as he, as he was slumping down and the second shot went off and it just knocked him down from the seat. I'm positive that it hit him. I hope it didn't, but I'm positive that it hit him and, it's, and he went all the way down in the car. 
Then they speeded up, and I didn't know what was going on, so I just grabbed the boy and fell on him in hopes that there wasn't a maniac around here. I'm sorry. I can't help you more, but I won't forget it. Did you make a statement to the Dallas Sheriff's Office? Yes, I did. How long did you remain in the Dallas Sheriff's Office that day? I was, say, about three hours to four hours. Were you among the closest witnesses to the limousine when the shot struck the president? Yes, sir. I would have to say that uh, uh, if not the closest, one of the closest to the unfortunate incident, uh, I did get a view of something I'll never forget. Were you called as a witness by the Warren Commission? No, I was not called by the Warren Commission to testify. After the Playboy interview, and after Brem had disagreed with Lane's interpretation of Brem's statements, Brem would speak about that, and here is a news clip stating that very plainly. Well, now, some critics of the Warren Report have taken your testimony or interviews with you uh, to indicate that you thought the shots came from behind the fence over there. What about that? Well, uh, sir, it was not a number of critics. It was one critic, Mark Lane, who takes very great liberties with adding to my quotation. I never said that the any shot came from here like I was quoted by Mr. Lane. Uh, Mr. Lane would like me to have positively identified the what I saw fly over here as skull, although I told him I could not. I did not examine. I thought it was, but I could not. So... He has added his interpretations to what I said, and uh, consequently, that's where the story comes from, that, that I said that a shot came from up there. No shot came from up there at any time during the whole fiasco that afternoon. Because Lee Harvey Oswald was murdered, there was never a trial to try and determine his guilt or to get at the whole truth. As a result, there were several cinematic attempts to have such a mock trial. The first was in the mid-60s, the second rendition came in the 70s, and finally, a third version occurred in the 1980s with two very famous attorneys representing the opposing sides of the trial. Vincent Bugliosi of Helter Skelter fame, the famous murder of Sharon Tate and others, taking up the position as prosecuting attorney, and Jerry Spence, a well-known defense attorney with an incredible intelligence and storytelling capability, would be the defense attorney. Charles Brem participated in the 1980s version of the mock trial that was aired on Showtime, and he was able to restate very clearly what his then view of things was as it related to the shots. And so here's the clip with Brem some 23 years later after the assassination. How long would you estimate, Mr. Brem, uh, the interval was between the first and the third shots? First and third shot? Uh... Somewhere around seven seconds. Okay. Did you form any opinion as to the location from which the three shots you heard came? Uh, I told the officers that it came from one of the two buildings, one of which uh, was the school book depository, the other one over that corner, one of the two. You feel very confident about that? Yes, sir, I do. In other words, you feel the, the shots, you believe the shots came from behind the president. Is that correct? Absolutely. No further questions. <clears throat> In the end, one thing is for sure. Even the most non-controversial witness can become controversial in the JFK assassination.
Let's turn our attention now to another set of eyewitnesses who were close up, Bill and Gail Newman. They were, in fact, the closest civilians to the president at the time of the fatal shot. Bill and Gail Newman headed to Dealey Plaza with their two sons. They got up that Friday morning and dressed in their Sunday best clothes. Mr. Newman was in between work as an electrician, so he had the time that day to take the family to see the president on this most momentous of occasions. Their original plan that day was not unlike a number of other individuals who had decided they were going to Love Field to see the president as he came in on Air Force One and began to greet the crowds right there, before he was to begin the parade route. Bill Newman had young Clayton in his hands, and young Billy was with Gail. As it turned out, Bill was able to press up to the front of the fence, and he and Clayton were able to get to see what was a rather close-up view of President Kennedy as he passed from the airplane toward the limousine that he would then occupy. But the crowds were thickening at Love Field, and Gail wasn't able to do the same, and so she didn't get a very good look at all that day. The crowds at the fence were two or three people deep, and she just didn't get a good look. So, the Newmans decided that they would take swift action. Knowing what the parade route was that day, the Newmans decided to head over to Dealey Plaza. They made their way downtown and settled on a place to park that was close to where the depository was, parking the car just a few blocks away. And from there, they made their way over to the corner of Houston and Maine. But even there, the crowds were thick enough, so they decided to keep looking. Eventually, they would make their way to the north side of Elm and end up being the very last group of people on that side of the street before you find your way to the underpass. They were it. They were the end of the line as far as spectators were concerned on the street level. You heard in a previous episode about the 12 slides which Phil Willis took and in that now famous slide taken at the time of the first shot. The Newmans can be seen in that shot across the street, prominently placed in the background of the presidential limousine. Once they got situated on Elm, it wasn't more than about five minutes when the Newmans began to hear the noise of the parade beginning to approach the corner of Maine and Houston. They had one more treat that day. Gail's uncle Steve Ellis was a Dallas police officer, and he was riding the lead motorcycle in the parade that day. As Gail would describe him, Uncle Steve was not a person to show much emotion, but they were excited to go see him, and the boys were excited to see Uncle Steve in the parade. When Policeman Ellis got to the corner of Houston and Elm, Gail spotted him and mentioned to the boys that he was about to turn the corner. They all began yelling out for Uncle Steve, and they began waving at him. And he nodded that day as he passed them and acknowledged their presence. For a moment, it was a wonderful scene for the Newmans. But it wouldn't last. It was only a few moments later when the shots began to ring out as the car began to head down Elm Street. Bill Newman, like so many others, thought that the first couple of shots were firecrackers. But as that car made its way closer, almost close enough to touch, some 10 or 15 feet away, the third shot rang out. At that point, the Newmans were almost directly across from the limousine as it began to pass by. Bill would be fixed right on the president as he saw the side of his head blow right off. He was standing there with his eyes firmly fixed on the president. It was horrible. At the time, he even thought that the president's ear might have been blown right off. Both Bill and Gail would immediately hit the deck and cover the boys. Bill would hear Jackie Kennedy scream out, Oh my God, they've shot Jack. 
Gail thought they were firecrackers too. She had not really ever been around gunfire. As the third shot rang out, Bill could see the president's flush fly up. Based on what they saw, Bill and Gail thought the shots were coming from right over their heads. Bill would turn to Gail and yell, That's it. Get down and cover the kids. A few days after the assassination, young Billy would climb up into his mother's lap and say, Mama, did you see all that blood? There was a pause, and then he would say, as only a child could ask so perfectly, Why did they shoot that man? Gail responded by saying that there was bad people in the world, but he was safe. And people do bad things, but nobody was going to hurt him. This is the kind of horror we don't often think about. This was a two-year-old. Bill was stunned, and when it began to sink in what was happening, what had happened, as the president had been shot, his anger began to grow. He would begin to pound the ground with his fist and would yell out, Some son of a bitch just shot the president. The Newmans were celebrity witnesses from almost the moment that the shots rang out. They were almost immediately encircled by media, and that little emotional outburst was caught by the press. Here they were, just trying to keep their kids safe and figure out what was up and what was coming next, but almost immediately they were encircled by reporters and newsmen. Soon they were whisked up by the WFAA reporters, including Jay Watson. The WFAA station offices weren't too far away, and initially they began to make the walk there, but in the rush to get to the station, the reporters would wave down a random car and explain what was happening. That the Newman family had witnessed the shooting of the president, and they asked the driver to take this family over to the news building. The driver listened and promptly gave them a ride over to the station. Once the Newmans got to the WFAA station, they became the first eyewitnesses to be interviewed live after the assassination occurred. All four of them together, including Billy and Clayton, were interviewed by Jay Watson in the studio. Let's listen to that original interview now, taken very shortly that afternoon after the assassination occurred. May I have your name, please, sir? Bill Newman. And this is Mrs. Newman? Yes, sir. And this is? James Clayton. James, and this is? Billy. Billy, tell me what you saw and what you felt. What happened to you? We were... We had just come from Love Field after seeing the president and the first lady, and we were just in front of the triple underpass on Elm Street, and we were at the edge of the curve, getting ready to wave at the president. So you were down, uh, you were down under a viaduct, so to speak, weren't you? Well, we were halfway in between the, on the, grass, the triple under, underpass. We were at the curve when the incident happened, but the president's car was some 50 feet still yet. Uh, in front of us coming towards us and we heard the first shot and the president I don't know who was hit first but the president jumped up in his seat and I thought it scared him I thought it was a firecracker because he looked you know fair and then as the car got directly in front of us well a gunshot apparently from behind us hit the president in the side, side of the temple did, did you, do you think the first gunshot came uh, from behind you too I, I think it came from the same location I, uh, apparently back up on the the uh, uh, mall, I don't know what you call it. For the benefit of nomenclature, all of you folks have gone out under the viaduct, and as you turn, going under the viaduct on the left-hand side, there's some grass, 
Uh, do you think the shot came from up on top of the viaduct toward the president? Is that correct? Yes, sir. Uh, not, no, not on the viaduct itself, but up on top of the hill, a little hill mound right. of ground near the garden. How far away do you, would you say that is from where the president was? Uh, a couple of 300 yards, something like that? Well, I have no idea because I, I didn't see the, the, where the gunshot come from. Uh, we were looking directly at the president when he was hit, mm -hmm. and he was more or less directly in front of us. And uh, we didn't realize what happened until we seen the side of his head uh, whenever the bullet hit him in the head. Did you see the blood coming seen the president's head? Yes, sir, we seen that. I seen that. I don't know if my wife did, but I seen that. Did oh, you? yes, sir, it was awful. Uh, your housewife yes, sir. took the day off to come downtown and see the president? Yes, sir, we did. We wanted our children to see it. Mm -hmm. oh, I, I thought it was a firecracker, and I saw the blood, and I I had the baby, and I, I just ran, and we I got on top of him and laid on the grass. I, I was, it just scared me. It was terrible. Tell me what happened. We were standing next to the curb so the children could see the president, and the car was just up a piece from us, and this shot fired out, and I thought it was a firecracker. And the president kind of raised up in his seat, and uh, I thought, you know, he was kind of going along with a gag or something. And then all of a sudden, this next one popped, and Governor Conley grabbed his stomach and kind of laid over to the side. And then another one, it was just all so fast, and President Kennedy reached up and grabbed, looked like he grabbed his ear, and blood just started gushing out. And uh, my husband said, quick, get down, and I grabbed the baby, and we ran and laid down on the grass, and I got on top of him. It was just, just right by us when it all happened, just right in front of us. Have you seen President Kennedy before? Uh, we were out at the airport, and we didn't get a very good view of him. And uh, so we decided we'd try to get downtown to see him because uh, Billy, that's our youngest son, is getting old enough that he remembers things like that, and we wanted him to be able to say that he saw President Kennedy. And, and now uh, he will be able to say that he saw President Kennedy when he was shot. It, yes, it, he's already saying, Mother, why would someone want to shoot President Kennedy? Um, children, you don't realize how they catch on to things, but he's already talking about why would they want to kill him. And, and that's a question that everyone would You didn't see anybody. No, see anybody. Uh, it, it happened so fast that you didn't have a chance to, to see anything. It... After they finished giving their on-camera interview at the TV station, Bill engaged in another short radio interview there as well. By that time, there was already two sheriff's office deputies waiting there at the station, waiting to take them over to the sheriff's office to make affidavits, which they did. When they got there, there were 16 witnesses all doing the same thing, all brought in to give affidavits about the assassination. Once they made their affidavits, all of the witnesses were ushered into a common conference room to sit and wait, and they would all be kept there for an extended period of time until all the affidavits were made and collected, and then basically reviewed by the authorities basically staying there till sometime in the evening as someone from the authorities, perhaps the FBI, Bill thought, were reviewing all the statements now compiled and seeing if any discrepancies existed between any of the witness statements. And if so, the witnesses were still readily available for re-review. It was getting late, and finally the sheriff's office would try to feed folks with bologna and olive loaf sandwiches. Yuck. Fitting, I guess, though, for such a terrible end to the day. That night, as the witnesses finally were released by the sheriff's authorities and made their way home, Bill was genuinely scared. 
This was horrifying stuff, and he knew that anyone who would kill the president would not hesitate to kill him or his family. Common sense told him that. When he got home, he immediately retrieved an old 20-gauge shotgun that he had in the house. He was going to be ready if someone came. He knew that being so close to the action, anyone might think that the Newmans could pick a suspect out of a lineup. Not that they saw anyone take a shot, because they hadn't. On Sunday, November 24th, the FBI would come out to their house and go over the original statement that they made on the day of the assassination. They did this to make sure that what they said was still how they saw it. Bill would say that, unlike many other witnesses that were threatened or purported to be threatened, neither he nor Gail or his sons were ever threatened by outside forces. In the end, they would not be called to testify before the Warren Commission, and presumably because it was clear that their initial testimony was clear and convincing that they heard shots from the grassy knoll. Years later, Bill Newman would be candid in why he thought they were not called to testify, and for him, as for so many, it was clear and simple. Here is the clip. I was interviewed by the FBI, but I did not testify before the Warren Commission. Uh, It's my understanding the reason I did not go before the Warren Commission was because in my uh, statement that I thought the shots came from directly behind implied the shots were coming from the grassy knoll. Uh, This is something apparently the Warren Commission did not want to hear. Uh, They wanted to keep the direction of the assassination in the direction of the school book depository. While Bill and Gail Newman were not called to testify before the Warren Commission, they would both be called to testify at the Clay Shaw trial in 1969. Their testimony there in New Orleans under oath would be some of the most vivid heard at the trial. It would be one of the few times that Clay Shaw's defense attorney, Mr. Diamond, would allow a witness to speak more than a few sentences without registering an objection. Bill Newman would recount the fatal shot as it hit the side of the president's head. As any good defense attorney might try to do, he would attempt to dismantle Bill Newman and his testimony. Diamond would grill Bill Newman on whether a shot to the side of the president's head was even possible from the grassy knoll. Not possible from the angle, he would argue. First, he would skillfully get Bill to describe the president's turning his head away just before the shots were fired. This then allowed Diamond to suggest that the angle then present between the grassy knoll and the head position of the president would make it impossible for a shot to the side of the head to occur. Newman saw what he saw, and no defense attorney, no matter how skillful in diverting from the truth, could change it. Newman would argue back that he just didn't agree and that the knoll was big enough for such a shot to occur. It was but one more high-profile clash of minds in the battle for the truth around who killed Kennedy. Years later, Bill Newman would reiterate what he thought about where the shots came from and the laser-like visual image of the president's head exploding on the side, still clear in his mind, that created a sensation to him at the time of the shot a sensation that the shot came from directly over his head. But it's apparent when listening to Bill in his later years that all of the assassination research and controversy has leaked into his mind and created some doubts for him. 
or at least a hesitancy to embrace a definitive answer. He still respects and stands by his original conclusions, but he is very clear on why he came to those initial conclusions. He didn't see the shot taken, but he saw the way it hit the president and the damage it did to the president's head. And that certainly contributed to the overall impression that he had right at that moment about where the shots had come from. And all of that together for him meant that they came from right over his head. But in deference and respect to all the credible opinions that are out there and which differ in some cases, he leaves it open for the true answer on where the shots came from. He knows that no one really knows for sure because no one saw the actual shooter, himself included. Gale is a little bit more definitive, I think. Gale would cap the final conversation by saying that it would be hard for her to believe that one person alone was involved in the assassination. It really was her way of saying that she still thinks there were shots from the knoll. I think, like most celebrity witnesses, they are leery of being labeled grassy knoll witnesses, so they are careful about what they say and how they say it. But I think they are clear on how they feel, and in my mind, They are still to this day supporters of a shot from the grassy knoll. And what they said some 58 years ago on November 22, 1963, about where those shots came from, what they said immediately after the assassination is still true today. Thank you for listening to episode 37 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. 